Hey everyone, so glad to be back with you. As many of you know, I, I did actually test positive for COVID a while back, a few weeks back. Uh, so the entire Streelock Castle was put on lockdown. Uh, fortunately, no one in my family tested positive, but uh, I went into isolation for a few weeks and they've let me out now. Uh, so God showed me grace. I basically, uh, I've just been really, really tired and I continue to, to feel tired. But all that said, I am very excited to get back into our series called The Great Awakening, Living in Light of Revelation. And what we've been doing is we've been walking through the apocalypse of John, known by most people as the book of Revelation, which is an apocalyptic book, which means its main purpose is to encourage its readers by pulling back the curtain on heaven to reveal a larger truth with which to better interpret our current circumstance. We, we always have to keep in mind that apocalyptic literature is extremely poetic. It's full of symbolism and color. And, and so although it's true, it's not to be taken literally all the symbolism. And it, it is as needed today as it was when it was first written almost 1900 years ago. So if you need to catch up, you can, you can go back to our media page on our website. You can check out our podcast because we've covered a lot of ground. So far, we've looked at uh, the, the early church and we, uh, the seven churches. We've opened the, the seals on a mysterious scroll in heaven that only Jesus has the power and authority to open. And with each seal that as it's opened, we see the havoc that humanity's sin brings on creation when it, when it fails to recognize its creator. Tension between each other, between nation, between creation and those who inhabit it. And, and today we look at the breaking of the seventh seal the final seal, which when it's opened, begins to show us kind of the closing story of creation, the, the final moves of God before the new, final, eternal, all-powerful kingdom takes its proper place. So today we're going to look at chapter 8. So go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. But before we read the chapter, I, I will say this. This is a part that is difficult to preach because it's about God's judgment, this is stuff that I'd rather we didn't have to, but it's, it's important. It is the revealed word of God for warning and for comfort, comfort for his church. And so as we move into these chapters of judgment, a few words about judgment to, to hopefully alleviate the bad taste that many of us have when, when, we, when we even say the word judgment. First of all, judgment tells us that, that God cares. Judgment tells us that God cares. Daryl Johnson says it this way. For judgment says God cares. Judgment says we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says God takes evil seriously. Judgment says God is not indifferent to, not, not tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. So, so judgment says God cares about the state of the world. But also, if we're honest, judgment is, is our desire. There's something in us that calls out for justice and judgment. For all of us who, who call out, how long, Lord? How long are you going to let this go on? For those of us who watch the news and wonder how evil can go seemingly unnoticed or without justice, one day those who got away with abuse in the dark, taking advantage of the powerless individual on a global scale, whether it be political power or, or corporate power, judgment will come and there will be no loophole to hide behind or there'll be no power to resist. The cry of the saints will be heard. The cry of the righteous will be heard. In chapter 6, you'll remember we heard the saints calling out from below the altar. 
In, in Revelation 6.10, it says, They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So God's judgment is a response of God to, to all of us crying out, God, are you seeing this evil that's going on? So judgment is what we desire. Also, we need to remember that judgment is not only negative. <laughs> evil gets its proper reward, but so does righteousness. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 12.14, For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So judgment means that evil is put in its proper place, but so are the poor. They're lifted up to their proper place. The impoverished, the orphan, the widow, the, the nation broken by war, their healing and ransom is part of justice as well. It's part of God's judgment. This is what Jesus said he came to do. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 20, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then it says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus said, this is being fulfilled in your presence. That's justice. This is what Jesus wants to bring, the putting of things right. Jesus made it clear that was his ultimate mission. The other thing we need to remember when it comes to eschatological or end times judgment is that final judgment is in the right hands. We get tainted when we think of justice because we think of how it's been badly used. But judgment is in the right hands, not because God, only because God is just, but he's also merciful. The holy God who knows full well that the wages of sin is death is also a loving, merciful God who gives the gift of eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we can, we can trust him to judge rightly, and more than that, we can trust him to judge with mercy. He is a judge who, as we talked about before, he wants none to perish. If there's a loophole to a judgment of conviction, God wants to find it. <laughs> he wants to find, actually, he's already provided it. It's called the cross. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Judgment is coming, but we have the cross. I've fallen short, but Christ has provided a way. I've sinned, I've gone astray, turned to my own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God is patient, not wanting any to suffer, and he will judge the nations. And he will, and as we'll see in, in today's text, although this, his holiness and, and justice requires judgment, his desire is for all to come to him. So as we read this, I'm mindful, uh, I heard a recording of a, of a church in California that read through uh, chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation. And, and each time there was a new trumpet, someone in the church played a trumpet for each new announcement. Uh, I, 
I don't think it would have the same effect if I pulled out my cornet from high school, so I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to read through Revelation chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and read along. It says this, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, it says, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth, at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow, and we'll explore that in chapter 9. But here, guys, the first thing that we see in today's text is that at the breaking of the seventh seal, everything goes quiet. Up until this point in Revelation, there's been explosive, colorful depictions of Jesus, the cosmic Christ, the lion who is a lamb, in all his glory and power, all of creation worshiping him in one voice and a depiction of, of evil taking its toll on creation as, as the six seals are being opened. And then here the seventh is opened and all of creation is silent. It's almost like a pause and a shift in the staging as we jump into a new scene. Or, or a time for the audience in heaven and earth to catch its breath. Traditionally, when, when sacrifices were made at the altar in Jerusalem, all were supposed to be quiet. In a culture where, where prayers were done out loud, simultaneously, all at a high volume, for everything to go silent in the temple courts must have been very powerful. At this scene, it's, that's playing out on a cosmic level. The prayers of the saints under the altar, have been mixed with incense, ascending to the throne of God, and all of creation goes silent as God listens and gets ready to act. And then it's as if the, the new actors in the cosmic scene take their positions and the next scene begins. The text tells us that seven angels are given trumpets. 
Trumpets represent royal proclamation and, and preparation for the arrival of a king. I think both of those are taking place here, but also they're meant to warn people of danger. We see this in Joel, and there's a lot of Joel played out in these next two chapters. But in Joel chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The way is being made for, for the arrival of the holy, all-powerful, rightful king. Seven angels have been given their, their trumpets of proclamation. And, and one, it says in verse 3, a different angel, it says another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So here we have an angel standing next to the, the altar in heaven where the prayers of the saints, we read in, in chapter 6, verse 9, are making their way to the throne room of God. And while, while that's happening, an angel takes fire from the altar and throws it at the earth. And there is, it's as if these prayers, this is how it's all going to come about in an answer to these prayers. There's a, there's a rumbling and, and flashes of lightning, an earthquake. Now, throughout the Bible, those images are always associated with God about to say or do something big. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, it says, On the morning of the third day, there, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Again, in Exodus 20, verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. So see, here God is about to speak. Notice the trumpets in those texts as well in Exodus. God is about to move on behalf of his people. And how does he do it? Well, we see seven angels are given trumpets. They are they are a response to the cry of God's people for God to act on their behalf. Much like the, the plagues in the story of the people of Israel in Exodus were, were a response to the call of God's people for deliverance, these plagues that we're about to see are God's response to God's people calling out for justice. And it's as if everything humanity takes for granted is being affected. The first trumpet in verse 7, hail and fire mixed with blood and, and fall to the sky. Where people normally look to the skies, the heavens for water and rain to bring, to bring them health, it brings death. Instead of bringing life to the earth, earth and helping with crops, it destroys. The second trumpet in verse 8 brings a great burning mountain hurling to the earth. Most scholars think that this mountain represents probably political power of kingdoms, which, which rings true. In, in Jeremiah, we see the ancient kingdom of Babylon itself and God's judgment compared to a burning mountain in very similar language. In Jeremiah 51, verse 25, it says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, speaking to Babylon, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So the second trumpet could imply the, the destruction of earthly empires, specifically Babylon, but also the Rome of the day of first century church. And, and whatever other earthly power we, we decide to bow to or we're told to bow to, this burning mountain is thrust into the sea and it, it affects travel in the sea. It, it, it hinders food. It hinders trade for, for, for the empire. This would be the major ways that the empire flourished. The third trumpet in verse 10 sees the destruction of fresh water, life-giving water. Water 
wormwood, wormwood known by the ancients as a, as a bitter plant that made water unbearable to drink. It, it taints the drinking water, making life, life-giving water scarce. The fourth trumpet in verse 12 brings darkness. See, see how all the things we, we take for granted here are in danger? The sun, moon, stars, they, they all lose a portion of some of their light. So these trumpet blasts here are, are showing us a few things. First, they're a call to attention. Just like the plagues brought on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, plagues that reduced the things taken for granted every day, to grab the attention of Egypt, grab the attention in, in the first century church of Rome, to grab the attention of the world, to grab the attention of the church, flirting with the idea of giving up God's kingdom for an earthly one. There's, there's a parallel to the plagues of Egypt. Hail and fire, drinking water destroyed, like the Nile turning to blood, darkness. But there's also a parallel in the protection of God's people. See, the, the people of God are still under the protection that we read about in Revelation 7, verse 3, as those who are marked to belong to the Lamb. The same way that God protected the Israelites during the plagues of Egypt, in the end, both here are protected by the Lamb. In Exodus 12, 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The powerful lamb is still offering salvation and protection. And in these plagues, in, in Revelation 8 and in the story of Exodus, we see that all the things that we take for granted in, in, in the kingdom of an all-sustaining God who holds all things together by his word, all these things are thrown into chaos. As if to say, even in your denial of me, I, I've still shown you my grace, but what will it look like when judgment comes? When I let go and give you what you desire, when I give you what you've demanded, a kingdom without a king, it will be a complete implosion. But, but the most important thing to notice here is not, will, will there be actual hail and fire and blood? Most likely not. Will there be a burning mountain falling into the sea, turning, turning the water to blood? Probably not. These are, these are imagery, this is imagery from the Old Testament. Some of you will remember that when I was about 10, a well-meaning camp counselor took myself and the rest of our cabin outside at about 11 at night to stand at the edge of the Okanagan Lake and asked us if we were ready for the day when it would turn to blood and everything near it would die. And then we sang Kubaya and we nestled peacefully into our beds. Are these literal, literal ideas of what's going to happen? Probably not. And, and God's protection over his own is clarified over and over. But blood symbolizes death. In this case, the death of nature. Will there be a, a star that strategically hits the earth on an angle that turns the water on the earth bitter or, or something that causes the sun, the moon, and the stars to dim? It's probably symbolic. I mean, maybe it'll happen, but that isn't the point. There's something going on here trying to tell us something, and it's not how does this happen, but why? 
Why is God doing this? Listen, God created all things by his word, sustains all things by his word. He could snuff creation out just as easy. But this is extravagant, drawn out, and poetic for a reason. And I think we find the reason in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. Why is he taking his time here? But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the six seals in chapters 6 and 7 showed us the natural outcome of our rejection of God. Wars, injustice, from the top down, from nation to neighbor. These first four trumpets in chapter 8 are a step towards divine judgment. But more important than the method is the measurement of the judgment. In the judgment of the trumpets, the the measurement is more important than the method. Remember, the the trumpets are a warning. They're not the final judgment. Notice the the measurement of these judgments. Did you notice it? One-third, one-third, one-third. This judgment is not total. Eight times it's repeated in chapter 8. One-third of the earth, the sea, the waters, the light. Not two-thirds, not three-thirds, not complete destruction. And even the fraction is not important. It it symbolizes something. As with most numbers in Revelation, the numbers are symbolic, not an actual exact measurement. And how do we measure out one-third? It's what it symbolizes. And what it symbolizes is mercy. What one-third symbolizes is warning and yet another chance. The trumpets are a warning and, and a call to render to Jesus what is his before final judgment. The trumpet blasts are a mercy. See, there's an order to God's judgment. It comes with his his revelation of himself through scripture, hoping for a response, a revealing of himself to Israel, a calling out through the prophets, and then the final Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who, who calls people to turn and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're given the very revelation of Jesus himself through his teachings, But even blatantly in Matthew 4, verse 17, where Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He verifies this through his life, death, and resurrection. We're given the gospels and, and the church as declarations of his kingdom. We are shown through nature itself that there is a way to live life that brings blessing and a way to live life that brings destruction. And in Revelation, we see that God is not done offering a way out or a way in, I should say. Even as his, even as his proper judgment is coming, it comes slowly and it comes with opportunity. And as we'll see next week, even in the face of destruction and warning, some will refuse to release their grasp on their lives. They will sit in the dark and declare it light. They will build their lives on the lies of Babylon, convinced of the power of man's momentary kingdoms over God's eternal kingdom. Some will continue to refuse, even as God calls out and offers mercy. They will scream with their entire being, you will not have me, and God eventually will oblige them. And it will break his heart, and it ought to break ours. Church, saints, those given the gift of the white robes of righteousness from Revelation 6, 11, given the mark of protection in 7, 3, we, we are the voice, the hands, the feet of the kingdom of God. The question we, we need to ask ourselves is the same that the church in the first century had to ask itself. Will we continue to associate ourselves with Christ and his kingdom? 
The trumpet blasts are a declaration of God's reign that we need to continue to listen to. The trumpets are a declaration of God's rightful reign. So will we live as those who are part of an eternal secure kingdom or will we find our comfort and belonging in a kingdom doomed to perish, doomed in its very nature? In the final verse of Revelation 8, verse 13, it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In, in pagan ap- apocalyptic literature, it was often birds who delivered warning, maybe because they had a view of the horizon that humanity did not. They could see what was coming. Here we have an eagle calling out, again, giving warning, more warning from God. Woe to those who dwell on the earth. More accurately, woe to those who make their home on the earth who limit the scope of their view, who who refuse to take in the invitation and the warning of the kingdom of God. Something more terrible is coming, so please listen to the warning. Church, this is a letter written to the church in the first century. Not many who did not associate themselves with Christ would have even heard this letter in the first century. And it wasn't written to them. It was a reminder to the church not to get too comfortable in the promises of man-made kingdoms, ideologies and businesses that are all about dwelling on earth with no eye on the horizon, to build houses made of the sand of self-interest and self-promotion rather than on the rock of Christ. This week, I have had conversations with people claiming to have faith, but who excuse behavior that is so anti-Christ In their sexuality, in their business decisions, they dismiss God. They make themselves comfortable as dwellers on the earth. And then they wonder why they leave broken relationships and hurt behind. Why they walk disoriented lives. Could it be these are opportunities each time for them to turn and to repent and to focus on the lamb. To hear the the circling eagle above and take heed of his warning. Church, this is not a message for people out there. This is for you and I. Will we heed this warning now? Are are we fighting to get comfortable in a foreign doomed kingdom or are we transfixed by the lamb on the throne who holds all of creation together by his word and who will one day bring his full proper justice to the powerful and to the poor? Church, I love you. I miss you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. God bless you. Can't wait to see you again.